Welcome to the Brown County Hours Story Slam Podcast. I'm Chuck Wills, bringing you a three-part series from our first event, recorded in April of 2019, with the theme, Fish Out of Water. Being our first Story Slam, we didn't know what to expect, and we're thrilled to see most of Brown County showed up for a packed house at the Brown County Inn. We had 11 storytellers that night, and some were audience members that decided on the spot to jump up on the stage. Thanks go out to our sponsors, the Old Magnolia House Inn for sponsoring our prizes, and the Nashville Arts and Entertainment Commission. We asked an icebreaker question that night. If you could have an endless supply of any food, what would it be? So you'll hear us introduce our storytellers with their favorites. In part two, we feature David Denman, and Deutsch, Ash, and Jessica Bussert. Now let's welcome David Denman to the stage. Well, this man started out like all men do, but he ended far different, far greater for us by far. He was born in Scotland on the North Sea, and he was born into a family. His father was an itinerant minister, very strict, followed everything by the Bible. And he instilled in his son and all of his family not to have any pride in themselves, to avoid praise of other men, and to think lowly of themselves. This stuck with his son all his life. He grew up on the wasteland of the shores of the North Sea. Even his name means waste places, John Muir. He lived there until he was 11. Now, school in Scotland was a combination of thrashing, memory, and reciting your lessons. So every day, from the time they entered, they had to remember Latin, French, English, spelling, arithmetic, history, geography. If they didn't get it right, they got whipped. They not only got whipped by the school teacher, they got whipped by their parents. His dad thrashed them all the time. But he learned a great deal. By the time he was 11, he knew three-quarters of the Old Testament, and he could recite the entire New Testament from Matthew to Revelation without a break. But he did a lot of wandering and exciting things in his youth. But one day, his father came in and said, you don't have to memorize your lessons today, boys. We're going to America. Well, for them, Gold on the trees, eagles, hawks, pigeons, bird nests, wild meadows. It was going to be freedom and running all the time. Not so. They started a farm. They built a house to bring the rest of the family over. John worked all the time as a young man. But he really got excited in when he was exposed to reading. His father had a very strict regimen. After evening dinner, family prayers to bed. John would try and snatch a few minutes to read something new. Shakespeare, Milton, Cowper, something. He was on fire with it. Every night his father would say, To bed, John, I don't have to tell you every night, do I? If you must read, you can get up early. Early as you want. So John went to bed that night saying, I'm going to wake up early. And he did. He went downstairs, checked the clock. One o'clock in the morning, 
boy, did his father rue the day that he told him he could do that because he couldn't read. It's too damn cold. He couldn't start a fire. His father wouldn't allow that. So he worked in a little workshop underneath his parents' bedroom. His father never took back that, that allowance. John started inventing. He invented incredible things. Saws, clocks, thermometers, hydrometers, and did it with practically nothing. He did all of this in his mind. So he went on and on. Well, now his father didn't really like this, but he couldn't stop him. It went on. He made clocks. His father was fascinated in them, but thought, you know, you really ought to be spending your time doing something different. His neighbors, on the other hand, encouraged him because they were beautiful. He whittled the pieces. He had no plans. He made clocks with pendulums that were 14 feet long out of old scraps around the farm. Amazing. A thermometer that he made out of an old wagon bed, the metal in the wagon bed, could sense your temperature from four feet away. Well, when he was 21, his neighbors encouraged him to go to the state fair because somebody would open the doors for him to use his inventions and his mind, and he'd become famous. John was shy, and he was always taught, don't look for the praise of men. But he wanted to start. He went to the fair, brought two clocks and a thermometer, and was the bell of the ball. Everybody wrote about him. He stayed in the background, but it did open things up for him. So he wanted to get an education. He went to the University of Madison and enrolled and started learning about botany and wandering the hillsides around, collecting specimens, doing all kinds of experiments. So from that point, he became an inventor famous in Indianapolis where he stuck a file in his eye and went blind. He said, if I ever get my sight, I'll never spend another day inside. When his doctor opened up his bandages, he walked a thousand miles to the Gulf and he wandered all over this country, proving that glaciers existed. They were forming the land, mountains. He wandered all over the mountains. The Shasta Range, the Range of Light. He became famous and everybody was talking about John Muir. That notoriety, he always stayed in the background too, but he knew a lot of very influential people. They set up the national parks. And out of that, we have what we do today. But in all those wanderings, he was like a fish out of water. Thank you. Ann Deutsch, everybody. Let's give her a hand. The story is called Rusty. Okay, I talk loud, so I didn't want to overdo it. So if I start being enthusiastic, you guys just hold your fingers in your ears. We'll be all right. Okay, Rusty at Whiskey Flats. About uh, 25 years ago, my husband Tom, there he is, and I, yeah, we were um, ranger naturalists at Yellowstone National Park. And, uh, of course, we didn't share the same days off, and we would both solo hike on our own day off, and the other one would come pick us up at the end of their shift. 
It was my turn to solo hike, and I was out hiking, having a very nice time. I was going to get picked up by Tom at Whiskey Flats. So I got to the pickup point early, and I was looking around for a place to rest and wait, and I looked across the road, and there was a bear. Did I mention you're not supposed to solo hike in Yellowstone? There was a bear, but uh, I was lucky. He was on the other side of the road. He was walking parallel to the road. He'd already passed my position, and he was walking away from me. And I was even luckier because I recognized that bear. He was a yearling black bear. His name, uh, well, the range, he just, bears don't have names, but the rangers all called him Rusty because of his fur color. And he was a habituated bear, which means that he, um, when he was near the road and the cars and tourists would stop and get out and look at him, it didn't bother him too much. Okay, I'm good, I'm relaxed, I'm waiting for Tom. And then I look the other direction and there's two dozen people, tourists, city people, in the woods, walking along, following the bear. Now, you all are from Brown County. I don't have to tell you why that's a stupid idea. And that was my first thought. Those idiots. And then I remembered I was a park ranger. Those nice city folk are having idiotic behavior. I'm a park ranger. I know what to do. But I didn't do it. Instead, I walked across the road, I joined the group, and we all walked through the woods following the bear. The bear's doing the regular thing, you know, he's looking over here, looking over there, maybe you'll find some food, maybe, you know, whatever he's doing. And the people are following, and everybody's got a smile on their face. Old people, kids, families, friends, a whole cross-section of ordinary tourists all as happy as clams and focused completely on, the, this was before cell phones, so they weren't distracted by their screens, focused completely on the bear, walking along. Rusty picks up the pace a little bit, and so do all of us. We're walking a little bit faster. And still, everything's going fine. The ladies in their street shoes are not stumbling. Nobody's tripping on the sticks. Nobody's slipping. Everybody's doing fine. And Rusty starts traveling along. And when a bear walks at travel pace, it, it's a walk to him, but it's mighty fast for us. So the group starts running through the woods. And I run right along with them. And uh, the, everybody's running around the sticks and running up and down the little uh, uneven ground areas. Nobody's slipping. Nobody's off balance. They're leaping over the fallen trees. And all of a sudden, Rusty abruptly, oh, I oh yes. And they are no longer happy. They are ecstatic. These people are in the zone. They are, they have superpowers. Everybody is just at with the bear. All of a sudden, Rusty stops short. And so do all the people, immediately, as one, like a little school of fish. And uh, Rusty looks around, and he starts running. He runs away from the road, up the hill, over the ridge, and out of sight. At the minute Rusty disappears from sight, the people's faces change and their bodies change, and all the energy goes out of the crowd. They, it's like they deflate. Suddenly, they're confused. They're 
afraid, they're anxious, they're lost. Where's the road? Well, luckily for them, it was only 200 feet away. And uh, eventually, a couple of guys found the road, and the rest of the crowd started walking that 200 feet. Only it was really hard for them. The ladies in street shoes, they couldn't keep their balance. The old ladies had to be helped over the fallen trees. The little kids got stuck in stick piles. But they made it. They got back to their car. And I sat down on another fallen tree, and I puzzled over what the heck we had just all experienced. And for a while, for years, I used to think that it was a really cool thing that these city folk, out of their element, acting stupidly, nonetheless had a transcendent experience of being one with nature. But as I get older and I rethink the thing again, I'm afraid that didn't explain my behavior. What was I doing participating? I am not the sort of person who chases bears through the woods. Maybe what I experienced was the, uh, the, the what's the word? I'm looking for the seductive nature of a group of people focused on one thing, acting in unison, regardless of the consequences. Maybe I was sucked into mob behavior. And as I look at our you know, political climate nowadays, I wonder if this is a little insight onto how people do stupid things. Yeah. <laughs> Up next, lover of steak, Ash. Welcome, Ash, to the stage. Thanks, man. Yeah. Hey, I want to apologize to the judges. I did not know what this thing was about. And uh, you can disqualify me because I have a costume and a couple props. But uh, this is a costume. <laughs> Well, I got some good news. This story, uh, like 85% of all my stories are at least half true. But this, this story is 100% true. Uh, my name's Leonard Jenkins, and I live up off a three-story hill road up there a little bit past Bean Blossom. And uh, I got a story to tell you that I hope really encourages you. Uh, when I was five years old, uh, my daddy died. He was an alcoholic, and he was arrested for vagrancy, and he was beaten to death in jail. I suppose that was the first time I felt like a fish out of water. You know, when you just can't breathe. Uh, when you know that you're in a situation uh, that you were not created to be in, and there's no way that you'd ever turn out to be what you were created for. And does that sound like anybody you know? Great things come out of fish being out of water sometimes, though. Because the next five summers, I spent uh, the summers in the mountains of Tennessee with my granny. That's where I learned storytelling. She would take me down to the courthouse square in Livingston, Tennessee, where all these old guys would carve. I watched them all summer. Finally, I went up to the oldest, crustiest one because I knew he was in charge. And I said, sir, I've noticed that you guys have been carving all summer. 
but you never make anything. <laughs> he never looked up. He just kept turning wood with that razor sharp pen knife. And he said, boy, when you take nothing and turn it into something, that's carving. But when you take something and turn it into nothing, that's whittling. <laughs> We're whittling here, boy. And ain't that the truth? Whittling and carving, uh, they look a lot alike. But they could not be more different. You know, fish look the same on the bank as they do in the water sometimes. The other person I learned storytelling from was my granny. She was four feet, ten inches tall. She had beautiful long gray and black hair. She combed it out every night way past her belt. But she always had it up in a little bun in the day. She had those little spectacles on the end of her nose. I never saw her without a long dress on, even in the garden. And uh, if you've ever seen the granny from the Beverly Hillbillies, that's a lot what my granny Pearl looked like. The first time I ever shot a gun, she made sure the stock was right there. First time I went in a cave, I was on her back. First time I gigged a frog, she held the light and stood behind me and said, you can uh, do it. First time I caught a catfish, she reached down into that puddle with her apron and grabbed that fish and it was croaking and grunting. She marched over to the barn door and somehow held it there with one arm, pulled a nail out of her teeth, popped it through the lips, and had the skin off in about ten seconds with a pair of pliers. I thought then and now, what a woman. She made the worst coffee you've ever tasted in your life. She drank it day after day, cup after cup, and then she'd go in the living room and offer it to the men. And none of them would touch it. But I noticed something. When my granny went in that room, all the language cleaned up. And all the cigarettes would go behind the back. And all the alcohol would go under the couch. You see, she raised the bar with her life. She took me on my first rat shoot. She pulled my toe out of the feather bed and said, let's go to the dump. It was two o'clock in the morning. We went through the woods and I was not afraid. She made this great big bonfire at the dump and she taped the flashlight on the top of a 22 rifle. And can you see that? A big bonfire and the rats come up and look at it and their eyes glow red. Granny and me, back to back, throwing lead as fast as we can. She made it fun. She put rubber bands around my cuffs. She said that'd keep the rats from going up. <laughs> She'd play hide and seek in the corn with us and my five little cousins all day long. She knew we liked to hide, but we loved to be found. <laughs> I realized later it was a grand strategy. See, before she'd go into the corn, she'd put sulfur on her ankles. That way she wouldn't get chiggers and we would. <laughs> so at night, we'd be all lined up like ducks to slaughter, like fish out of water, 
In the porch swing, she grabbed Maxwell House coffee can and whipped up this paste of pine saw, flour, sugar, and camphor oil. And she would hit every chigger bite with that paste, and it burned like fire. But it was too late. That's when it would happen. She would reach behind the porch swing, and she would grab the big, thick thing, the Bible. She'd make it come alive. I'll never forget. It was the first time I saw it. But what I remember the most about Grandma is every morning I would hear this. Biscuits. Cathead biscuits. I love to hear that cup sing. Well, I got the call we all get. And as a grown man with my own four kids, I went to say goodbye to Granny Pearl. I got to her hospital bed and she was gibbering and jabbering and nobody could understand her. But because I knew her so well, I knew she was saying coffee. You saying coffee, Granny? And she'd blink her eyes one time. Isn't it something how life comes around? Because I got to hold her in my arms, just like she held me in the porch swing. And I said, Granny, you ready to go be with Jesus? And she blinked her eyes one time. Well, she passed on Monday, Thursday. And the Monday after Easter was a great celebration of her life. I kept looking at my watch the whole time because I thought I was going to have to leave early. But I didn't. And in the dirt, I was by myself and there was a bulletin from the funeral. And it hit me like lightning, my favorite part. Because at the very bottom of the page it said, Reverend Michael J. Ashburn officiating. And uh, that's me. <laughs> I became a minister. And I knew she wouldn't be upset if I had to have left. Because it was an investment that she had made uh, with fish and frogs and caves and shotguns and tinkle cans and awful coffee and biscuits. A whole lot of stuff that just looked like whittling ended up being a whole lot of carving. So you be encouraged, Brown County. All you grandparents and parents, because you ain't whittling, you're carving. Thank you, Ash. Last but certainly not least, the lover of watermelon jolly ranchers. Let's welcome Jessica Busser to the stage. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a smart woman, and I know when I've been whipped, and so I just got to say, right there, excellent story. But I'm also a believer you uh, finish what you started, so I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story about risking life and limb in search of sunken treasure right here in landlocked Indiana. <clears throat> so I grew up on the banks of the St. Joe River up in the northern part of the state. Now I'll tell you, St. Joe is unusual for one kind of thing, weird thing, that uh, it flows. It's one of the only rivers in the country that flows south to north. It empties up in Lake Michigan. Now, it's unusual for a couple other things. One, that I grew up on the bank, because, you know, there you go. But 
every year to give people the chance to clean out around their docks, the community would shut down the dam and this beautiful mighty river would be reduced to a teeny little creek. Now, when you're nine years old living on the high bank of the St. Joe River, that's the perfect opportunity to go out looking for sunken treasure. And you know it's out there. You're going to find that chest out there. There was Pirate Island just down. We could see it from our pier. And I knew that that little island that was about the size of this stage, there was stuff on it. And I knew we'd find buried chests out there. And if nothing else, I could replenish my bobbers and, and my lures that I'd lost the year before. So I resolved myself to go out in that beautiful river muck and dig up whatever I could. Well, if you've ever spent much time in river muck, you're going to know that it's pretty darn soggy. And I trudged out. Now, this is a Saturday afternoon. The folks, I don't know where they were. They, high bank, we, back that time, I, the world, kids had freedom. We could do whatever we wanted. And this day, I'm going to trudge out in that river muck. And so I take steps out, and I get a little farther out. I get a little farther out. But this wet, soggy river muck starts sinking and sucking up my legs. Now, I'm a smart kid. I can't get out to the treasure like this, but I figured something out. I went right back up to the house. We had a scrap pile of wood. I took a couple of boards about yay big, took my shoes off, and I hammered my shoes right to these boards, made my own little snowshoe muck shoe things, right? Went right back out there, and it worked perfect. And I'm trudging out, I'm trudging, I'm farther and farther and farther. Still no treasure, though. But the farther I get, the soupier this muck gets. And after a little while, the muck starts to seep over the boards. Well, then the boards, instead of helping me stay above, were trying to keep me below. And I'm maybe 150 yards out in the middle of this river, Nobody knows I'm out there. And the more I struggle, the more I shimmy, the deeper I get down into that muck. First I'm up to my knees, then I'm up to my thighs. Finally, and I, there's no yelling. Nobody's going to hear you out there. And finally I realize I'm going to be dead if they open up that dam and nobody knows where I am. So I, I got to get myself out of this trouble. So I look behind me. There's a dead tree in the muck. And I lean back over. I lean back over and I grab a branch. I grab a branch. I pull. I pull and the branch snaps. <sighs> All right. I got to try this one more time. It's my only hope. I lay full face down in the muck stretch out absolutely as far as I can, and I grab the thickest branch I can reach, and I've got to stretch and stretch and stretch, and I'm burying my face in this nasty old river muck. I finally grab, and I'm pulling, and I'm pulling, and I'm praying 
that the branch isn't going to break. And I'm praying and I'm pulling and I'm praying. And, I'm, and all of a sudden, one, my right foot <laughs> pops out of my shoe. Then my left foot. And I'm sliming my way out of this hole. Now, there was no way to get back to the bank on my feet. I literally had to crawl the entire way on my belly to get back to safety. So when I crawled out of that river, a nine-year-old kid covered from head to toe in river muck, I looked like the swamp thing. And that's my story of being a fish out of water. Thanks for joining us for the Brown County Hour Story Slam. You can join us for the next one at Brown County Inn on the second Thursday of every month or anytime on our website, browncountyhour.com. You can also subscribe to all of our podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you.